Welcome back to The Word Encounter, episode 183. We're currently in the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 12. We've got a lot to cover, so let's get to it. It says, uh, the Lord of the Sabbath, verse 1. It says, at that time Jesus passed through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick and eat uh, some heads of grain. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, See, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. <clears throat> verse 3. Now, for, before we get into verse 3, we got to understand where the Pharisees are coming from, right? So the Lord had held, you know, God had held them or had he- held their lack of Sabbath keeping against them. You see, and so, but they had morphed the Sabbath, Sabbath into a set of rules and regulations and burdens, if you will. And the Sabbath was never intended to be a burden to the people. It was intended to give them rest. The Sabbath was created after the Israelites came out of Egypt, led by Moses, and where they had been uh, enslaved and working all the time. And so the Lord instituted the Sabbath so that they would have a day of rest. And so it was not to be a burden, an extra thing on their backs. See, it was for their benefit. That's why the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, but the Pharisees had morphed it and confused it in such that now uh, they're using it um, uh, as a weapon, if you will, against the people. And so they said, look, they're not keeping the Sabbath. What are you doing, Jesus? In verse 3, it says, he said to them, haven't you read what David did uh, when he and those who were with him uh, were hungry? How he entered the house of God and they ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him or for those who are with him, Uh, to eat, but only for the priest. And so when David was on the lamb, when he was running uh, uh, from Saul and whatnot, they came across, they needed some food. David and his troops needed some food. And so uh, the priest allowed them to eat old bread, you know, not the present bread, but still they weren't supposed to do that. That was, quote, unlawful. See, but these things aren't meant to harm the people. These things are meant to help the people. And so you have to, again, apply context to what's going on here or what was going on at that time. Then it says in verse 6, I said, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would, uh, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And so Jesus is telling them, telling them look, if you had understood the heart of God, you see, that what he's after is what's good for his children, what's good for his people, that he desires mercy and compassion for them and not sacrifices. If you really understood this, you would have never have condemned anything that my disciples have done. Because, see, we weren't working on the Sabbath. We were just hungry. We needed something to eat. <laughs> and then he tells them, but I'm greater than the temple, the, the, than, the, than the Sabbath keeping. He said, I'm greater than that. You don't understand this yet. But I'm greater than that, you see, because the creator is always greater than the creation. The Sabbath is a creation. But here you had the son of the son of God, you know, in fleshly form, trying to tell him, trying to school him on what's going on. It says uh, the next one, uh, Jesus heals on the Sabbath. Then it says in verse nine, moving on from there, he entered their synagogue. There he saw a man who had a shriveled hand, and in, um, and in order to accuse him, they asked him, in order for, so uh, the Pharisees saw this, the man you know, has a shriveled hand. He's in the temple. He's in the synagogue, okay? And the Pharisees see this. Now take note that it says that um, moving on for there, he, Jesus, 
entered their synagogue. So he's in the synagogue or the temple or what we might call the church. He's in a church building. He's in, in the house of worship, if you will. And the man is in there with a shriveled hand. So it might stand the reason that maybe the man is in there praying for, for the restoration of his hand. You know, maybe that's why he's in the building. Then it says in verse 10, there he saw a man who had a shriveled hand. And in order to accuse him, in order for the Pharisees to accuse him, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He replied to them, Jesus, who among you, if he had a sheep that fell into a pit, a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't hold it off and lift it out? See, wouldn't take hold of it. Hold it off. What am I talking about? <laughs> wouldn't take hold of it and lift it out. So he's saying, who among you, if you saw a sheep of yours, an animal of yours that fell into a ditch, who among you wouldn't take it out? Wouldn't grab hold of it and take it out? It says in verse 12, a person is worth far more than a sheep, so it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. Verse 13, he says, then he told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched, out, uh, so he stretched it out, and it was restored as good as the other. But now the Pharisees, we see the heart, their heart being revealed here. It says, but the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might kill him. See, they didn't like him coming around. They didn't, you, know, you, you would think that here you have this guy coming into your temple, into your sanctuary, if you will, performing a miracle. You might, you might think that, man, whoa, the, the power of God manifesting in front of my eyes. But that's not what their response was. Their response was, how can we get rid of this dude? The servant in the Lord, verse 15. Jesus was aware of this and withdrew. So Jesus was aware of what they were thinking. Okay, large uh, crowds followed him and he healed them all. He warned them not to make known. He warned them not to make him known. He did not want to become famous in that way. He's like, no, don't don't tell anybody that this is happening. So that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And so we see that in Isaiah 42, one through four, it says, here's my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. And it goes on through the prophecy. And then it says, the nations will put their hope in his name. And so we see here another example where Jesus is the fulfillment of a prophetic word from hundreds of years previous. See, and so the Bible, one of the lessons here is that, you know, the, the Bible tends to interpret itself. And so we might read some things like in Old Testament prophecies, it's like, what does that mean? You know, but if we keep reading, keep studying and whatnot, the Bible tends to reveal things and interpret itself. And so, um, so we see here that, that what took place here, Jesus was the fulfillment of a prophetic word that uh, Isaiah delivered, you know, five, 600 years uh, prior to Jesus. A house divided, verse 22. It says, uh, then a demon-possessed man who was blind and unable to speak, was brought to him. He healed him so that the man could both speak and see. <clears throat> when the Pharisees heard this, uh, they said, this man drives out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. Verse 25, Jesus again, knowing their thoughts, he knew what they were thinking. He told them, every kingdom divided against itself is, is headed for destruction, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. 
how, uh, how then will his kingdom stand? And so Jesus is saying, look, if you're saying I'm driving out demons by the power of Satan, well, demons are from Satan. So essentially what you're saying is Satan is driving out Satan. Satan is fighting Satan. And if Satan is fighting Satan, how can his kingdom stand? How can it have any power? It can't. Then he says in verse 29, how can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. So Jesus said, look, how can I go in or how can anybody go into a man's house and steal his stuff unless he ties him up first and then takes his stuff? And so you're, you're saying I'm from, you know, Beelzebub, I'm from the devil. Well, in order to plunder him, in order to get rid of his demons, I have to first tie him up. That doesn't make any sense. And it says, anyone who is not with me is against me. And anyone who does not gather with me scatters. So Jesus is saying, look, there's two sides of this thing. You're either with me or you're against me, period. No straddling the fence. End of story. Therefore, I will tell you, uh, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be, uh, it will be forgiven him. So Jesus is saying anything that you say against me, okay, you can be forgiven uh, for that. But blaspheme in the Holy Spirit, it says, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Uh, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or the age to come. And so what is blaspheming against the Holy Spirit? Well, if we look at this in context, we see here that Jesus is talking about uh, the Pharisees essentially attributing what he had done with regard to um, uh, driving out demons and, and healing. And they had attributed that to Beelzebub, to, to the devil, to the enemy. And so in other words, they had attributed the work of the spirit, the work of God to the enemy. That's the context that this is written in. And so that is probably a huge red flag with regard to what exactly blaspheming the Holy Spirit is. If one gives credit to something that God is doing, to something other than God, then that seems to be blaspheming the Holy Spirit. God watches over his word to perform it. God is jealous for his worship. And so when we attribute things that he does to something or somebody else, I would assume that he's not too pleased with that. And it seems as though that falls within or under the umbrella of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. A tree and its fruit says here, or uh, the danger of careless words. This is critical. Verse 34, brood of, viper, brood of vipers, how can you speak about doing good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. In other words, the mouth is slave to the heart. So whatever is in the heart is what comes out of the mouth. If you got lies and deceits in your mouth, then it's coming from the heart. The heart is wicked. In verse 36, it says, and we need to listen to this, pay attention. I got this highlighted and starred and everything in my Bible. I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be acquitted and by your words, you will be condemned. The word says, I tell you the truth, on that day of judgment, on judgment day, you will be accountable 
for every word that has ever come out of your mouth. Think about that. Think about the words that have come out of your mouth. For by your words, you will either be acquitted or you will be condemned. What is coming out of your mouth? Whatever is coming out of your mouth is an indication of what's in your heart. If if what's coming out of your mouth is poison, then your heart is poison and it needs to be rectified. It needs to be redeemed. Fortunately, there is redemption. The sign of Jonah in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, now, now here's the thing. They've already seen signs, right? He's already healed you know, the people with shriveled hands and driven out demons. He's already done this stuff. <laughs> but they're saying they want to see. They don't really want to see a sign. They're not sincere in their question. He says in verse 39, he answered them. An evil, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign. In other words, he's saying, look, you don't want to hear my word. You're claiming that you need proof. But that's just proof that you're evil and adulterous because the proof is already available. The proof is already there for those that are sincere and they're looking. For those that are sincere and they're seeking, the proof is already out there. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Now he's speaking forward towards his cru- uh, crucifixion. Verse 41, the men of Nineveh will stand up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. And so the non-Jews, the Gentile Ninevites, will stand up and will con- condemn the, the, the hard-hearted Jewish people, because they repented at Jonah's preaching. So Jonah went in and reluctantly preached the word of God. And the Ninevites, uh, they repented and they turned at that time. And says, and looking uh, for something greater than Jonah is here. And look, I should say, and look, something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus is saying, the Ninevites, at the preaching of Jonah, they repented. But something greater than Jonah is here. In fact, the Son of Man is here and you won't listen. He says, the Ninevites will stand up and condemn you on that day. The unclean spirits return. It says, when an unclean spirit comes out of a person, it roams through the waterless places looking for rest, but doesn't find any. Uh, Then it says, I'll go back to my house uh, that I came from. Returning, it finds the house vacant, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and settle down there. As a result, the person's last condition is worse than the first condition. This is how it will also be with this evil generation. Now, what does this mean? This means that when a person, maybe they identify something in themselves that they want to clean up that's not right. And so let's say they get that part of their life straight. But they never, they never turn to the Lord. This is just out of will. They're doing it themselves. And why not? Well, Jesus is saying, look, when you do things like that, when you do things in your own power and thinking that this is good enough, it's going to come back on you and it's going to be way worse than it was. See, but if you turn to the Lord and you and the Lord get rid of this thing, then it will stay away. We go on. This is true relationships. Someone told him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to the one who was speaking to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? 
Stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Verse 50, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is critical. In the United States, we have a church that, that's divided amongst or, or along, I should say, racial lines. The word is saying here that whoever essentially is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is our, their siblings. Their siblings, <laughs> brothers and sisters. You know, but we don't treat each other like brothers and sisters in many cases. We treat each other like the enemy. We're not uh, obeying. We're not being obedient to the word of the Lord. See, how many, for, for those of you who are confessing Christians, how many of you have, uh, 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 I would say, close relationships across the racial line to other brothers and sisters in Christ? Jesus is essentially saying, look, you have blood brothers and sisters, but those who are washed by the blood of the lamb are actually should take priority over natural blood brothers and sisters. That's what he's saying. See, the blood of the lamb is more galvanizing and more powerful than physical blood. But that's not how we treat each other. Let's go on to chapter 13. It's parable of the sower. On that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. Such large crowds gathered around him uh, that he got into a boat and sat out while the whole crowd stood on the shore. And he said this, he said, consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came along and devoured them. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil. And it grew up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. But when the sun came up, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered. Other seed fell along the thorns, among the thorns and the thorns came up and choked it. Still other seed fell on good ground and produced fruit some a hundred, some 60, and some 30 times what was sown. Let anyone who has ears hear. Why Jesus used parables? It says in verse 10, then the disciples came up and asked him, why are you speaking to them in parables? And so Jesus is talking to his uh, crowds, and there were many. He's talking to them in riddles. <laughs> So can you imagine? So uh, you witness him healing people and doing these miraculous things. And so you say, I got to hear what this guy has to say. And so he's gathering crowds of people. And then he starts talking to you in riddles. And the people are saying, you know, what, what does that mean? It, it, it could, I know I can see myself being frustrated by trying to figure out what is he trying to say? In verse 11, it says, he answered. So the disciples asked him, why do you do this? He said, because the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, have been given for you to know, but it has not been given to them. It's been given to you because I identified you, but it's not been given to the broader crowd. It says in verse 12, for whoever has more will be given to him and he will have more than enough. But whoever does not have even what he has uh, will be taken away from him. And so this is this is pointing to being a good steward over what you have. If you take care of what you have, more will be given. If you uh, if you just fared it away, if you if you're not responsible with it, it will be taken away from you. In verse 13, that is why I speak to them in parables. He says, because uh, he says this, because looking they do not see and hearing they do not listen or understand. 
He's saying this is why I speak to them in parables, because they're, they, they're not seeing, they're not hearing. So I'm speaking to them in parables. And then in verse 14, which is uh, Isaiah 6, 9, and 10, it says, Isaiah's prophecy fulfilled, um, fulfilled in them, which says, you will listen. So this is, again, Isaiah prophesying hundreds of years previously. It says, you will listen and listen, but never understand. You will look and look, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown callous. Their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their ears and hear, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn back and I would heal them. So God is saying that this is going to happen in the future, prophesying through Isaiah, that the people are not hearing or seeing, because if they did see or hear, then I would hear them, and they would turn back, and they would be healed. Blessed, it says, or blessed are your eyes. Now, Jesus is talking back to his disciples. He says, blessed are your eyes because they do see, and your ears because they do hear. So he's affirming the disciples. He says, but your eyes and ears... They see and they hear. So you will understand. In verse 17, it says, For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous, righteous people long to see the things that you see but didn't see them, to hear the things you hear but didn't hear them. And so the disciples are getting things that the Old Testament prophets never got. And it says, The parable of the sower explained in verse 18. So listen to the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word about the kingdom, and doesn't understand it. The evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is, um, this is the one sown along the path. And so whenever somebody hears the word of the Lord, hears the gospel, but they don't understand it, it's like the evil one comes and just takes it away. You know, so, so they, they get nothing. In verse 20, it says, and the, one, um, and the one sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. So somebody might go to a, crus a crusade or something, hear the word of God being preached and get real excited about it. But he has no root and it's short-lived. He has no substance to what he's believing. He's just getting emotionally excited. See, but it has no substance. And then it says, when distress or persecution comes because of the word, immediately he falls away. And so when people start mocking him or start questioning his beliefs or, 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 or anything like that, making fun of him, then he's just going to fall away because, again, there's no root. Verse 22 says, now the one sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the worries of this age and the deceitfulness of wealth Choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. So he hears the word, he responds to the word, gets, maybe gets excited about the word, gets excited about God and whatnot. But then life starts to happen, right? And so then um, he starts to get concerned and worried about things, be it finances, health, relationships, whatever. And then he starts to, you know, the deceitfulness of wealth. If, if I was only, you know, if I only had more money, if I only did this. And, I, and so then all this stuff comes in and it chokes the life out of the word. He stops believing and it becomes unfruitful. So now he's toast. Verse 23. But the one sown on the good ground, this is the one who hears and understands the word and who produces fruit and yields some hundred, some 60, some 30 times what was sown. So this is the one who hears 
and responds. Doesn't doesn't just hear, doesn't just get excited, just just doesn't marinate on it and think about it. They actually start doing things. The parable of the wheat and the weeds. Verse 24, he presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while the people were sleeping, his enemy came, sowed the weeds among the wheat and left. When the plant sprouted uh, and produced grain, then the weeds also appeared. The landlord's servant uh, came to him and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where, uh, where did the weeds come from? The master says, an enemy did this. He told them, uh, so. So then the, the, the workers asked, so, do you want us to go and pull them up? The servants asked. No, he said, when you pull up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. At harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and tie them up in bundles to burn them, but collect the wheat in my barn. And so gather the weeds, bundle them up and burn them, but collect the wheat. See, so this is analogous to what will happen at, uh, on Judgment Day. Now, basically, the unbelievers will be gathered up and will be ushered out of God's presence. But those who believe, they will be saved. The parable, uh, the parable of a man in the mustard seed. It says, um, he presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all the seeds. The mustard seed is very, very tiny, extremely tiny. But when grown, it's taller than the garden plants that become a tree. So the birds of the sky come to nest in its branches. And so uh, what the word is saying here is like the word is like a mustard seed. It's very small, but it has tremendous power. And when it gets planted, germinates and it sprouts and it becomes huge and it dominates everything in its area. It says using parables fulfills prophecy. Jesus told the crowds all these things in parables, and he did not tell them anything without a parable. So Jesus only spoke to the crowds in riddles. That's it. And he did uh, uh, so so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. It says, I will open my mouth in parables. I will declare these things. I will declare things kept secret from the foundation of the world. I believe that's in Psalms. Then it says, Jesus interprets the parables of the wheat and the weeds. Then he left the crowds. So he's going to interpret it to his disciples now. So he leaves the crowds and he went into the house. His disciples approached him and said, explain the parable of the weeds in the field. He replied, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed. Uh, these are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Uh, the harvest is the edge of, excuse me, the, har the harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. Therefore, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather from his kingdom all who cause sin, <laughs> all who cause sin, and those guilty of lawlessness. They will throw them into the blazing furnace uh, where, they will be where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Let anyone who has ears listen. Then it says the parable of the hidden treasure. Verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything 
and buys that field. And so it's, just, it's like a man comes across the field. He, he unburies or he discovers a treasure. He says, oh, man. So he puts it back in the ground, covers it up. And then it says, in his joy, he goes and sells everything in order to purchase that field. In his joy, to me, is key. And it says, uh, the parable of the gnat. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a large net thrown into the sea. It collected every kind of fish. And when it was full, they dragged it ashore, sat it down, and gathered the good fish into the containers and threw out the worthless ones. So it will be at the end of this age. The angels will go out, separate the evil people from the righteous, and throw them into the blazing furnace where, will, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then uh, finally we get down here to rejection at uh, Nazareth. When Jesus had finished these parables, he left there. He went to his hometown and began to teach them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these uh, miraculous powers? And he says, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't, uh, isn't his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And he says, and his sisters, aren't they all with us? So where does he get, the, where does he get all these things? And they were offended by him. See, they, they were familiar with him. And so they were offended because they said, we know his family. Who, why is he special? Because we're familiar with people, we can tend to diminish who they are. And it says, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and in his household. It says, everybody else recognizes me, but you don't. You're too familiar with me. You think you know me. And then it says in verse 58, and he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. And this suggests that an atmosphere of belief is necessary for miraculous things to take place. So be careful of your attitudes. Guard your attitudes. Believe in the Lord. Believe in what he can do. And with that, we're finished. And we will pick it up in uh, episode, I guess, 184 tomorrow. Everybody take, take care. Stay safe. Be blessed. Bye-bye.